0: Tom Saviano is a multi-talented musician, songwriter, arranger and producer who has enjoyed a long distinguished career as part of the L.A. music scene. Hailing from Chicago, Tom's father was a gifted trombone player who started him on woodwinds at a very young age and groomed him specifically to be a great studio musician. His early session work as an arranger and musician includes credits for diverse acts such as Melissa Manchester, Peter Chris, Paul Anka, Shirley Bassey, Leo Sayer, Ringo Starr, Brenda Russell and many others. In 1980, Saviano stepped to the forefront as an artist, creating the first of two fantastic albums of sophisticated R&B with his band, Heat. Those releases featured musicians such as David Foster, Steve Porcaro, Hardney Mason, Lenny Castro, Chuck Finley, and Jerry Hay. Saviano has also released two smooth jazz solo albums and has enjoyed writing and producing projects for up-and-coming artists. His resume includes decades of credits, literally hundreds of sessions and occasional tours with collaborators such as Bill Champlin, Earth, Wind & Fire, Ziggy Marley, Chicago, Max Weinberg, Maroon 5, Muse, and many more. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Tom Salviano. Hey Tom, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, no problem. And before we get started, I uh, wanted to uh, mention that uh, Inside Music Cast correspondent Scott Gross is joining us also today. Hi, Scott.
1: Hey
2: guys, how are you?
1: All
0: right.
3: Doing great. Hi
2: Scott. Hey Tom, how's it going, man? going great. Good to have you here. Good. Let's get
3: into this thing. Yeah, really. Hey, hey, Tom. Growing up as a kid, you you know you're a Chicago raised kid. Uh, Were were there many options, um, you know, in becoming a musician for you? I mean, tell us about uh, your your dad. Uh, He had quite a bit of influence in you as a young musician. Tell us about that, would you? Well, uh,
1: there were plenty of options growing up as a kid in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I grew up on the South Side of Chicago, but. Being raised by the family that I was raised in, um, you know, music was a big part. My dad came from a family of fourteen children, and uh, all of his brothers played instruments. And he was the second youngest. So growing, he was born in the twenties. Obviously, went through the depression. By the time he was ten years old, his older brothers were already playing all the instruments. Band, you know, they had, they played anywhere from guitar, trumpet, sax, accordion. They had it all, you know. <laughs> right, and uh, my grandfather, having that many children, um, couldn't afford to buy instruments for the younger ones because he had already, you know, bought instruments for the older guys. And so my dad used to run around the house as a little kid playing paper accordions. That's how much he wanted to <laughs> music. And he never got his instrument until he married my mom when he was twenty years old. Yeah. So he obviously had a real hunger for music, and uh, he advanced very quickly. When he when he did get the instrument and started to arrange and all these different things, but um, he he you know because he had to support his family and and everything uh, he didn't he wasn't able to fulfill his dreams as a musician and and do what he wanted to do.
4: So mm-hmm.
1: he passed it down to me and my two brothers,
4: mm-hmm. and we
1: both we all all three of us played. Um, I'm the only one that continued. But they all played, you know, while we were in Chicago, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that's how that all started. Yeah,
3: you know? but it wasn't really only your father. I mean, your 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 uncle. I mean, they were all sort of family influences, and they, uh, I guess, in terms of of you know pushing you towards um, or directing you to mastering, uh, you know, woodwind uh, instruments. Um, you know, thinking about those younger days, uh, did you ever want to play any other instruments at all, or what what were you touching at that time?
1: Um, at that time. I wasn't really focused on any other instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the um, thing that my dad would do is play a lot of the studio records with Henry Mancini and all these horn players, and he'd point out the names of guys that he thought were the great musicians that were making these records, yeah. and he would, you know, tell me, hey, you should sound like this guy or try to go for this sound or something like that, and mm-hmm. then he would say, uh, you need to start doubling on flute and clarinet now so that by the time you, you know, get out of high school, you'll have all three of those ready to go. Yeah. And so he had me studying clarinet first, um, saxophone, and then flute.
4: Mm-hmm. But
1: yeah, I should add, there's a little side note to this story. What really happened is when I was in fourth grade, I was given my uncle's saxophone to start because the school programs back then would, you know, come around and, and, hey, let's get the kids on an instrument. Right, right. Well, I, I, you know, I was in fourth grade, and I didn't take it real serious at that point. Um, I took the horn, and I was showing off for one of my little girlfriends on the way home from school, and it was my <laughs> uncle's saxophone, and I was, I was kicking the horn case down the sidewalk on the way home from school.
0: And the sax broke, And Exactly. <laughs>
1: yeah. Every time I would kick it, the girl would laugh more, so that, that you know, I'd kick it harder, you know. <laughs> And
3: That's a logical. By the thing, time right? we
1: got home, opened the case and the bell of the alto saxophone was crushed.
3: Oh, you know, no.
1: and I didn't know. I was, i mean, I was stupid, and I did—I did it anyway. Of course, um, when my dad got home and saw it, he threw a fit and took the instrument away from me. Oh. So, what happened is—is is that being the, that the family all had you know children and and, and my cousins all played instruments as well there was this big competition of everybody being in band, and I wasn't in it anymore.
4: <laughs>
1: so, he used reverse psychology on me. And he didn't get an instrument until like two years later, and by that time I was just starting junior high school, uh-huh. and he bought me an old beat-up clarinet, and, man, I was so hungry to play. I practiced so hard. And I kind of passed all my cousins up at that point a little bit, you know, and uh, that's, that led to a much serious more serious approach toward music for me. You
0: yeah, know? yeah. Well, it's actually a good thing you kicked that sax around a little bit, huh? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was an early Jimi Hendrix getting ready to light it on fire. Yeah. That's right, maybe, you know?
0: Hey, can you share hmm. with us uh, something about a connection to Louis Armstrong through your dad?
1: Yes. Um, as I explained earlier, my dad started a little later, mm-hmm. and so he was very hungry to learn all things about music, not mm-hmm. just playing an instrument. He wanted to arrange and write and sing. He did all that stuff. So he um, went up to the Chicago in, into the Loop. We lived on the south side in Chicago Heights, right, so we right. were 20 miles out of the city. He'd go up into the city and try to find teachers. And one particular day, he ran into uh, Louis Armstrong's wife, mm-hmm. Lil Armstrong. Mm-hmm. And he approached her and asked her if she knew of a good teacher. Mm-hmm. And she said, "Yes, I have one for you." And it was a guy by the name of Zilner Randolph. Okay. Now, um, as far as um, Zilner Randolph, he uh, has the distinction of being one of the first African American uh, musicians to have a college education. Hmm. So he could read music. Uh, he went to the Wisconsin Conservatory of Music. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went to the Kruger Conservatory a lot of different colleges and this is for a guy that was back in the 20s and 30s it's kind of unusual you know yeah um he ended up being the arranger for Woody Herman, Fletcher Henderson, Duke Ellington, Earl Hines and yeah. he was uh, the musical director for uh Louis Armstrong mm-hmm. for about 5 to 8 years i believe so that was my dad's arranging teacher and uh, he would uh, he would you know take my dad and my dad told me a couple of stories where he would sit in in the room and um uh, take the door and move the door and squeak and the door would squeak and he would say, Hey, uh Al, what is that note? <laughs> my dad said, I don't know. And he said, Well you need to know because if you're on a train going across the country and your band leader asks you to write a chart, you're not gonna have a piano. So you need to hear these notes in your head. And that way you can write it out write it out on the score paper. Mm-hmm. So that was the the method he taught my dad how to write that way and my dad wrote that way for most of his life. He didn't really like to write with the piano. He'd sit down and write the score in his head. Yeah, and he tried to teach me that way. I, I did it a little bit. Um, I, I resisted because I like to hear the chords and mm-hmm. I like to sit down at the keyboard and hear the voicings. You know. Mm-hmm. So,
0: well, in, in doing some other research, uh, we, we noticed that you played on Ray Charles' last album, uh, Genius Loves Company. And that many decades before that, um, your teacher uh, who taught you to arrange music actually had a connection to Ray Charles as well, is that right?
1: That's correct. Uh, After my dad, you know, had given me some arranging instructions, I started to, uh, you know, venture out on my own to find, you know, teachers that I might want to study for, from, uh, instead of uh, just from my dad. And one of them was a gentleman by the name of Bill Baker, and he was Ray Charles' arranger, Mm -hmm. uh, did several albums with Ray. And to this day, I spoke to him recently and he said when Ray was still alive, he would still ask him for charts. Um, <laughs> he also was an arranger for the uh, Righteous Brothers. Bill really? Medley and, you know, all of that stuff.
3: Really cool. Very, very neat. You know, when it comes down to, you know, you made a transition to L.A. And um, so when you got there, I mean, do you remember your your first gig? What was your first opportunity that that you were discovering when you first got to to L.A.?
1: Well, we came to L.A. in 1967, Mm -hmm. and that was the year I graduated high school. Gotcha. So I was uh, reluctant uh, about leaving my friends because, as you know, you grow up with all your high school buddies, and all of a sudden you think, well, maybe we'll hang together afterwards, go to college together or something like that. And Mm -hmm. here I was moving from Chicago to L.A. and didn't know anybody in L.A. Right. And so I was reluctant. So we got here. Um, we had some family uh, in Huntington Beach, and uh, my dad's plan was to get me in the Stan Kenton Neophonic over at Cerritos College. Okay. They had a special program where the Stan Kenton Band and, and some of the members of the band were you know, coaching the kids and had classes and everything. So he thought that would be a good place for me, mm-hmm. and uh, we tried to get in, but it was over-enrolled. So it looked like we were probably going to go back to Chicago, and I was thrilled. <laughs> 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 so we, we went back... We went back to visit our relatives in Huntington Beach, and they said, hey, there's a new college opening up down here. It's called Golden West College. Mm. And, uh, you know, they have an open enrollment, and Tom could probably get in there. So I was like, oh, no, you know. So (laughs) I ended up going down there uh, to the enrollment, and the band leader was actually in line trying to recruit musicians. Really? (laughs) Because it was a new school. And uh, it was nice because... He was so happy to see me, and found out that I can play clarinet and flute and sax, and it just I fell into this program where the guy basically made me one of the assistant band leaders. So really? instant friendships with with him, and you know, kind of you're kind of popular because you're running the show a little bit, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know, so that's kind of what happened. That's how it started.
3: Very cool. Very cool.
2: Hey Tom, I noticed uh, producer Vinnie Pontia was instrumental in connecting you with Melissa Manchester. Can you tell us how you first met Vinny and about how you came to work with Melissa for an extended period of time?
1: Sure. Um, that really connects to this uh, the the college program. So I'm at Golden West College, and I'm playing in the jazz band, I'm playing in the concert band, you know, and in each band I'm playing a different instrument. For example, jazz band, of course, saxophone. Uh, concert band, I'm playing concert clarinet, first chair, next to this other older guy who used to play with Charlie Parker but this guy was an amazing clarinet player Dan Silva Um, and uh, he was just fantastic so I I have to tell the the details of this part because if I don't say this it it won't make any sense so I met a drummer in, in jazz band David Jones he introduced me to the first rock band that I ever joined and basically up until that point I was a reader classically trained you know play anything you put in front of me that kind of thing And this guy started bringing records around from uh, Chicago. He had uh, the first Chicago album. And he said, hey, man, check this out. This rock group's got a cool horn section, you know, and around the same time, blood, sweat, and tears. So we formed a rock band. And um, I was the arranger and one of the horn players, and we had four horns. And uh, the band started playing around town. Next thing you know uh there's another group that has a record deal on on m g m Curb records called Churchill, and they're like a power trio, and they sounded like Grand funk railroad <laughs> and um for some reason, they heard our horn section and they wanted to merge the bands together, so we merged and we and we uh made an album went up to Hollywood, and made an album with um with that band and it was at Producers' Workshop, one of the finest studios yeah. in town, yep. And I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, that was my first studio to go record in. And I I was naive. I didn't know. I figured out just another studio. But then, as I learned later in life, it was one of the best studios ever. And so we're making this album. And there's a guy by the name of Emery Gordy, who is uh, Elvis Presley's bass player. He's producing the album. And they're just kind of going on and on about, you know, how great the band sounds. And so we make the album get it done and I arranged and wrote the first three songs I ever wrote were on this album and you know they were good musical songs but uh basically the lyrics were eh okay you know first three songs I ever tried to write just just starting <laughs> but uh, the group got signed and uh to a deal with this uh, Mike curbs label and the contract was horrible and it was just a terrible contract, and we, we didn't know anything. We were naive. We, we'd never seen a contract before, but we just kind of knew that something wasn't right. So we're playing a gig one night, and um, one of Frank Zappa's managers seized the band. And we were all fan, fans of Frank Zappa because we used to do some of his material. Actually, we did a song called Willie the Pimp in this band. It was one of Zappas' <laughs> And the uh, band was kind of crazy. We used to do Hendrix tunes, too. It's uh, another story. We actually recorded... Uh, Dolly Dagger by Jimi Hendrix with horns. (laughs) So um, anyway, uh, the band broke up because um, Zappa's people wanted us to sign with, you'll love this part of the story, this ties together pretty good. Um, They wanted us to sign with their, their company and be on Warner Brothers, and they said the reason why we like you so much is there's a new group out of the Bay Area that has horns that just got signed and Capricorn Records wants to sign a, a, re, a group like them and we think you guys can compete. And that was Tower of Power of course. Oh yeah. So yeah, they were signed around that same time. So our band we were going to sign, we wanted to sign with uh, Zappa's company and, and go with uh, you know, that whole deal. We thought it would be great and with Capricorn Records with the Alman brothers there, we thought, "Hey, this is a big label. We'd be we'd do well there." And half the band said no and half the band said yes, so the band broke up. <laughs> <laughs> And it fragmented into three different groups. Some guys went one way, and this is where we met Vinny. One of the groups that I was in, and and the guitar player, I co-led the group. We were playing a gig at uh, Big Daddy's um, nightclub in Marina Del Rey. And we had gone through uh, frustrating times for about a year or two, just trying to get back to where we were with that you know, recording at Producers Workshop. We started to realize how fantastic that was. And we go, wow. We should get back in the studio. This is where we belong, you know. But it didn't happen, so we were playing gigs. And one night, Vinnie Poncia comes in with this other artist, uh, Gino Kunico, and he's sitting at a table, and he calls me over after uh, uh, one of the breaks and starts to talk to me and says, Hey, I really like your band, and um, you know, we'd like to have you come up and back this singer, Gino Kunico, who's signed to Arista Records. And we didn't know who Vinnie was. I didn't. I didn't know who Gino was. So, I kind of looked at him. and I said, "Well, who are you guys?" <laughs> and he started laughing. You know, he started <laughs> laughing at me, and he says, "Well, if you come up, come up to L.A. You know, we were based in Orange County at the time." He said, "If you come up to L.A., um, I'll I'll show you more of who I am." So we did, and uh, we started to come up there and record, and we we ended up being Gino's backup band for a while. But what happened was is that they heard the band and they wanted to produce the band, so there we were back in the studio up in, in the L.A. area again, Hollywood. And uh, that's how I met initially met uh, Vinny. And as time went by, Vinny used to come around and, and listen to the rehearsals and recording sessions, and he started to ask me if I would do some arranging for him. And that's where we started our relationship.
0: Very cool. Well, switching gears a little bit, I, I understand that you still get quite a bit of attention even to this day for uh, some sessions and arranging you did for uh, the original drummer of Kiss, Peter Chris. And uh, I think back when he recorded his solo album in 1978. And what are some of your memories from, from that experience with Peter?
1: You know, Peter was uh, in the studio. I remember he had his girlfriend there. Vinny was there. Um, I remember that um, the horn date was really a quick one. We, we you know, I was a, Vinnie would call me up and say, hey, write some horns for these songs, and he'd send over the tapes, and I'd listen to it and do the chart. And I and and by that time, I had worked for Vinnie enough to know uh, the formula of what he liked. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I got to know him well enough, and I said, well, I know that he doesn't like high trumpets too much, so uh, I need to write the horns in more of a, you know, Rolling Stones kind of fashion, where it's sax-heavy, lower-range, and that's the way I approached it, and that's how that session went. It was, I don't know if you've heard those albums, but the horn sound, you know, fat, and almost, uh, I don't know, stacks you call the stacks horn section, you know?
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Nothing sure. like what I do with Heat or the the jazzier stuff that I've done with uh, Champlin or those kind of right. arrangements, you know? Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, I noticed in 79 you did arrangements and played on an album for Sandy Farina, she was in the Sgt. Pepper movie with uh, uh Peter Frampton. Uh and that but that, that session included Jeff Picaro. Was this the first uh, time you met Jeff?
1: Uh no. I actually met Jeff at a party at Bill Schnee's house. Um and uh we hung out. He had, he was aware of my work and there was some conversation about some other arranger they were talking about. I don't even remember the guy's name, and Jeff just said, I would rather work on Tommy stuff, you know. <laughs> so I hadn't worked with him yet, but he was already kind of digging what I was doing, so I was like, hey, this is cool. (laughs) Nice cat, and he's, you know, of course, he was Jeff, and I hadn't had a chance to get in the studio with him, but after that, the actual, I think the first recording was a group called the Alessi Brothers, um, Mm. and he played drums on most of those tracks, Mm -hmm. and I did the arrangements for him. And then I think there were two more records after that that I worked with him on, and then Sandy Farina, which was. Really a lot of fun. We had a blast. And, you know, Luke was on those dates, too.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: As well as, I think, uh, Luke was on it, and Mike might have been playing bass. Hmm. I'm, wow. It was either Mike or Neil Steubenhouse. I forget.
3: Interesting. But. You know, this uh, brings us to your uh, your band, Heat, and, of course, the debut album back in uh, nineteen eighty. And the project—it uh, was—it was an amazing uh, lineup of some musicians that you had, and and uh, the, even two of the vocalist singers, uh, Jean Marie uh, Arnold, who was your wife at the time, and Joe Pizzullo. Can you tell us about this uh, this first project here, the this debut uh, Heat album, and uh, what was your inspiration in the the songwriting formula for this whole thing? Uh,
1: the inspiration in the songwriting uh, went back years before we actually did the Heat album. Uh, mm-hmm. Jeannie and I met in nineteen. 19- 74, or I think around 74, when she came out from New York, uh, I did some arrangements on her album. She was also an heiress, a recording artist, signed (laughs) to Clive Davis, and Vinny was producing her. So, I was called to come in and do some horn arrangements for their record, did it, met them, and uh, was very impressed with her singing, as well as her singing partner, Christy. Christy uh, and her had a group called Arnold and Thompson that were signed to heiress, the record. mm -hmm. So, we started to work together. I had a, I had a band uh, that I was working with at the time, and they they were in, in town from New York and living here in L.A., so they needed a gig, and uh, they started singing in a band. And around that time, uh, a gentleman by the name of Phil Cody came into the picture, and he had a solo album. Um, Phil Cody, I guess, is famous for writing Laughter in the Rain with mm-hmm. Neil Sedaka. Yeah,
4: yeah.
1: Yeah. Sure. So, He also wrote a solitaire for Elvis Presley, Okay, kind of a big writer. He had a solo album on Warner Brothers, and he asked me if I knew any background singers when I got the gig as a sax player in his band. And Jeannie and and, uh, Christy were available, so we all went on tour together. We did The Bottom Line in New York and The Roxy, all those little Mm -hmm, kind of mm
4: -hmm.
1: uh, 500-seat venue type of things that you do.
4: Yeah.
1: And so we got off the road on the tour, after that tour, and... uh, Jeannie and I started to write tunes together. Um, Christy came and brought uh, one of her friends over, uh, which was this guy named uh, Ernest Chapman. And Ernest is uh, Jeff Beck's manager. So we started to hang out a little bit. Uh, You know, Jeff used to come into town, and we'd hang out with him. Mm It was a lot of fun. I mean... Kind of surreal in a way. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, especially
1: getting off the road with Phil Cody and then sitting at a hotel at the Continental Hyatt House, in, uh, you know, on Sunset. And here I'm sitting there with Jeff Beck, and there's Eric Clapton, <laughs> and mm-hmm. the house band is playing one of Eric's tunes. And I'm thinking, <laughs> do these guys know that he's sitting right here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I was sitting there with Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton, the there's this, this <laughs> casual band, you know, the hotel band is playing. I think I shot the sheriff or something, or After Midnight, one of those. <laughs> and I, I got a laugh out of it, too, actually. I said, I wonder if they really know if you guys are here, if they're doing it because they saw you no, or kidding. what, you know? Yeah, yeah. But... It was interesting.
0: Yeah, uh, the band's thinking, we'll, we'll show him. That's right.
1: <laughs> exactly. exactly you know? so, um, so it was kind of a surreal experience. And, and at that point, Jeff heard some of my instrumental stuff. I was already starting to do my own solo jazz thing before I met Jeannie. And I was trying to you know, go, go for a solo sax thing. And uh, he heard one of my instrumentals and liked it enough and took it back to England and was going to cut it. But it, for some reason, you know, if you're not in the room when that kind of thing is going down, it's sort of like you got to be there. Yeah. And the other musicians have tunes too, so if you're not in the room, <laughs> your tune can get bumped bumped away. You know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> right. Exactly. Just, you just got to be around. So um, uh, as far as the uh, as the writing thing, as uh, as Jeannie and I got to know each other, we we kept trying to get deals together as uh, me producing her stuff as a solo artist, mm-hmm. and Christy eventually moved to London with. Uh, with Jeff's manager and married him. She's still married to him to this day. And uh, so, you know, we, we just kept working together. Jeannie and I kept working together, and uh, and we got involved and got married eventually. And, you know, what we found out is, is that every time we would try to get a record deal and we'd share it with our friends, our, our, our associates and our friends, everybody would always say, hey, man, that's great, man, that's fantastic. You know, but for some reason we we spilled the beans too soon and the deal wouldn't come through, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So we stopped doing that after a while, and that was around the time I started doing a lot of work for the entertainment company, and they were the production company behind the Heat album, but they were also the producers of Barbara Streisand and Dolly Parton and mm-hmm. a lot of these um, M.O.R. kind of artists,
3: Yeah. Right. what I call mm-hmm. them. Exactly. But you and were...
1: Heat was nothing like any of that stuff. Yeah. But the fact is, I was one of their main arrangers, and they knew me, and they also knew of Jeannie because Jeannie had a reputation coming out of New York being signed to Clive Davis. So Mm -hmm. they thought, hey, this is a good combination. Tom is the writer and arranger. Jeannie is a singer. And then um, as I was on the road with Melissa around that same time, Jeannie was um, kind of uh, doing a a casual in town on the west side, I think, uh, with uh, Joe Pizzulo.
4: And Mm -hmm. they
1: sounded great together. And when I got back in town, she said, "Hey, you need to hear the two of us together because we got a great blend." Yeah, and I did hear it, and well, you could hear it on the Heat albums. Yeah, yeah, sounds great. And that's how the whole thing got going.
3: You Mm -hmm. know, cool. Well, you were the producer on that album too. I mean, you must have felt really like a. Geez, a kid in a candy store. I mean, when you have Foster, Steve Percaro, Castro, you know, Paul Jackson Jr., Steubenhaus, Mason. And, you know, and then, of course, to top that off, you know, you also had one heck of a horn section, you know, with Chuck Finley and Jerry Hay and Reichenbach and Grant. All those guys. I mean, what what were these sessions like? I mean, you were playing with the best of the best, you know, or you were directing them.
1: Well, it were fantastic. Obviously, you know, it was it was like being like a kid in the candy store. Here was the beauty of it, though. I, I've learned this since. If you watch directors, you know, and in, in casting movies and stuff, they always go with actors that they've worked with in the past, or they know their work, so they bring in people who can particularly play a certain part a certain way. Well, I had the benefit of being an arranger for many years before mm-hmm. the Heat album was recorded, and and be able to be in the studio with different combinations of those rhythm section players that you mentioned. And you could, you know, you could pick up their style and what, what tunes they played the best. They could, you know, all of them could play any kind of music, but certain guys played a certain groove better than the other. You know what I mean? And that's why they get called for this certain kind of song, in my opinion. Yeah. And that's how I, I casted that album with different drummers and different piano players on different tunes. If I had my choice, Foster probably would have been playing on more tunes, but he's on 3 of the first uh first album mm-hmm. and uh Jay Winding who's not such a bad piano player himself was on the rest of them and he's an old friend too. So we we had done a lot of dates together. So I had to have either him or David Foster, you know, if I if I had been hanging with Paige at the time, I probably would have called him to play. And that's another guy that we had sort of a relationship with too, but Yeah. Um but you know, the uh the 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 horn section I just had lunch with Chuck and Slide Hyde a couple of days ago, and we had done many dates together, so I kind of knew who to call for that and knew who the the right cats were because I was in the section with them. That's kind of hard not to see who can play the parts right, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, With Chuck, and that first album had different combinations of trumpet players. Uh, In one section, there was Chuck and Steve uh, Medeo. I think it was Judd Miller and... uh, Let's see like in Ralph Rickard was the other trumpet player mm-hmm. and then when Chuck wasn't able to make it Jerry Hay replaced him in the section gotcha. on the first album mm-hmm. so you had Jerry Steve and Ralph and Judd and I think the way the pecking order probably went is usually Chuck would play lead trumpet mm-hmm. when he was there mm-hmm. and Jerry would play lead when he came in and Steve was right there with him and Steve could very well have played some of the lead parts as well yeah. you know
2: I noticed you composed five tracks and co-wrote three of the songs with Genie on the debut album. You co-produced, arranged, and played on every track. What was the challenge like being so invested in this album and wearing so many different hats?
1: Uh, it's it's hard. <laughs> uh, here's the other thing. You, you're the producer, you're the writer, you're the arranger. Uh, you're also... One of the artists, because I had I wanted to play sax. But what I did is basically wrote myself out of the band a little bit because you, you got to leave room room for the singers. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, as you notice on the heat albums, there's sax solos, but it comes in sparingly. And it was kind of a joke that I, I started to go through after the first album with uh, some friends of mine. They, I, I'd say, "Yeah, listen to the single," and they say, "Where are you at?" <laughs> I said, I'm coming, don't worry, my phone's coming, and it would be like two or three notes, and then I'm gone, right? And they said, oh, well, why don't you do your own instrumental album? I said, well, you know, I'm doing this right now. So, anyway, um, the, the, the fun part was is that I wrote the tunes, you know, produced them, arranged them, and uh, as far as getting to play on them a lot as a sax player, well, you listen to the album, you'll hear where I'm playing uh, some of the tunes, I didn't even play sax at all. I went and played keyboard, you know.
0: You went right back into the studio to record the follow-up uh, Heat album, Still Waiting, that was released in 81, uh, and I wondered how, how did those sessions go compared to that first record, and uh, did you have any different goals or different uh, you know aspirations for that new project?
1: Yes, um, we had some goals, and I, I had some goals in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the first album had no pictures on the album. Now, that didn't really bother me, except that at radio at the time, there was. I found out after the album was done that the reason they didn't put the pictures on is because they wanted to promote us at uh, at what they call black radio and cash box. That's what they called it. Right, it was right. the, you know, the, it had, uh, the black radio charts, and then you had the pop charts. Yep. Well, we were on the black charts, and uh, we did quite well. And I just said, well... Why don't you want to have the picture on there? And they said, Well, they might not play your record and I said, Really? I said, Is that really happening? And they said, Sure. And and, and they said, And it's going the other way too. Sometimes the black artists wouldn't get played on the what we call pop or white radio stations. Mm-hmm. So um it was a shock for me to be to, between you and I. This was nineteen eighty, you know, and I'm like, that stuff's still really going down. It's that that crazy and it was. Yeah. So um Hopefully it's changed a little bit. I think it has. But um, back then it, it hadn't. And um, we, uh, I, I personally said, well, this is the kind of music that we do naturally. This is what we feel. We're not trying to do it this way. We feel it this way. So we had to rethink everything. And I said, what can I do that would fit into this, this mold that would still be pop and, and still be acceptable that we would like and enjoy doing? you know, that we actually could feel. Yeah. And that's when we started to change up the direction a little bit, maybe go a little more rock. Uh, Steely Dan was coming around. We dug Steely Dan because they had, you know, great chord changes, great music, great Mm -hmm. writing. So we thought, hmm, we could, you know, fall into that bag a little bit. So we started to head in that direction. And that, that, when we did the second album, that was what we had in mind. Unfortunately, there were some contractual issues going down with the band because the first album had high expectations from everybody in the industry. As a matter of fact, there were rumors of, hey, you guys might win Grammy for Best New Group of the Year. And so when the disappointment of that didn't happen, but the label called us up and said, hey, we want to keep you guys. We think you're a great group. We want to do another album. But we didn't even know we had been picked up already because the production company already accepted an advance from them six months before we knew they ever had it. <laughs> so there was some there was some craziness going on between lawyers and sales figures and all that stuff. So uh, we were promised by the production company, to say, "Hey, we didn't really like what MCA Universal did for the first album, so we want to move you over to CBS." And I was like, "I my eyes open really wide to go really CBS? Mm-hmm. Great, mm-hmm. that's where Earth Wind and Fire is, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and Chicago was on CBS at the time, so I thought." hey, they probably would really know what to do with a group like us. Yeah, really know, smoke it, you know? Yeah. And I got excited, but it was just all smoke and mirrors because he really never had the intent of, uh, I don't think, really moving us over there. Um, It never happened. So it pretty much ended our relationship with that production company at that point. And uh, we went on and signed directly with MCA and did the second album. And we thought about it and we said, well, Maybe we're going to end up doing another album after this, so maybe we should save some of these tunes that are not quite in the same R&B vein and and do another album and start a whole new direction, but this one will keep kind of sort of in the same direction as the first
0: album. And that's, mm-hmm. how it,
1: that's how it all turned out that way.
0: Yeah, well, you just uh, mentioned Earth, Wind & Fire a second ago, and in 81, uh, you played on that uh, album Rays, for two tracks. I think you're a winner, and I want to be with you. And the, the horn parts on those those tracks are just, you know, obviously unbelievable. And tell me a little bit about those sessions and working with Earth, Wind & Fire back then.
1: Well, um, of course, I had the honor of working with the Jerry Hay Horn section, and Jerry's charts are always amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Uh, that's a, it's a spinoff from probably working with Jerry on the Heat albums because after the Heat albums, Jerry and, and, and David Foster and a few of the musicians that worked on those records were recommending me to people around town. And I would get phone calls and they'd say, hey, I got a call from David Foster. He said, I should use you on this. And I said, well, that's I'm honored that he's doing that, you know. And same type of thing kind of happened with Jerry. Uh, and eventually, uh, Jerry actually called me for the date to come and play on Earth, Wind, and Fire, which was Kind of crazy because they knew about heat, and I was over at their the complex they call it the ARC complex. Yep. And uh, in the control room is Quincy Jones and Maurice White and um, Andrew Wolfe, who I had become friends with, with the uh, the main sax player, the, the one that stood up and he wasn't really part of the section; he was a front man with them, you know. And uh, they were kind of pointing through the control room, saying, "Hey, that's the guy that did heat." I thought uh oh am I in trouble or and they were just like you know like grinning and laughing they they thought it was great that I was in the section you know (laughs) Uh, that song by the way the winners what a great chart no like absolutely that was sort of like oh, sit down and play this first time through you know
0: yeah really <laughs> well it definitely goes without saying that the uh, the horn parts on that were, were pretty unbelievable for those two earth wind and fire songs and um, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to stop for a second I'm going to play the back half of this song you are a winner by earth wind and fire so we can take a listen to the incredible horn arrangements and uh, of course the performances that you really brought to this uh, this piece so let's take a listen
3: You've had a great uh, friendship with a good friend of ours, who's been uh, we've hung out uh, a little bit with Bill Champlin, and uh, that resulted in a, a lot of a few great songs that you've co-written together and much more. So, um, you know, Bill's a great collaborator. He collaborates with a lot of people, but tell us a little bit about your collaboration with uh, with him, and, and some of the highlights of your collaboration with uh, some of the the tracks or songs that you're most proud of.
1: Uh, you know, Bill and I uh, have a song that was placed on Chicago Twenty One, mm-hmm. and we had written that song uh, four or five years before that album ever came out. And um, that uh, the song is called "Holding On." And I kind of remember uh, going over to Foster Studio in Malibu with Bill when they were doing, uh, you know, some of the earlier Chicago albums that Foster produced. And, you know, of course, David recognized me. Hey, man, how you doing? Man, what are you doing with this guy? <laughs> you know, they used, joke, they used to joke with each other, and I was thinking, well, I'm with the guy that you won Grammys with, you know? <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> they did, I think, uh, they share a Grammy, uh, David and, and Bill and uh, and Jay, you know, Jay Graydon. So they share a Grammy together for After the Love is Gone. And uh, so anyway, I you know, Bill and I met uh, be- long before this, um back uh, between the beginning of the Heat album and uh, when I was telling you I was writing with Jeannie and also working on my solo jazz career, well, I was uh, being courted by a producer by the name of Skip Drinkwater. Skip was uh, the producer of Captain Fingers for The yeah. Written Hour.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay, mm-hmm. so what he used to do is he'd say, uh, and, and and by the way, he was recording those albums at the same studio that the Heat album was recorded in, which was called Sound Labs.
4: Okay. Kitty yeah.
1: Corner from Capitol Records there on Vine, Yucca, and Argyle. Uh-huh. And uh, so I used to go down to that studio, and he'd call me and say, hey, come down to a session. I'm doing a rhythm date. So you asked me about Jeff Picaro. This was the first time I actually saw Jeff in the studio. They were playing a tune with him, uh, Jeff on drums,
4: uh-huh. uh,
1: Charles Meeks on bass, um, yeah. Ray Parker Jr. on guitar and, um, and you know, of course, Lee. Yep. And it was, when they started playing, I was in the control room at Sound Labs, and it just, like, the groove was instantaneous. I'm like, what, who are these guys, you know? So, and Foster was on piano on that, by the way. Mm-hmm. So, this is the early stuff, you yeah. know? Yeah. And, and I'm like, these guys are great, man. I, you know, and so they come out and do the, uh, you know, they come out for the playback into the control room, and Skip is introducing me to everybody. He goes, "Hey, this is Tom Saviano. You guys are going to be playing on his album next, you know." <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm think, I'm flying, you know. I'm going, "Man, if I get these guys, this is fantastic. I didn't know who they were, you yeah. know. I just knew they were great." Right. And mm-hmm. they were fantastic. So, I kept coming back to different nights, to different sessions. And one time I came back, uh they were doing a song by Stevie Wonder called Isn't She Lovely. Okay. And I'm in the control room and the and the recording room is dark. I can't see who's singing. So I'm hearing this voice, and I'm thinking, oh, man, great African-American voice. I'm thinking, ah, this is great. You know, this has got, got this brother out there singing, and then out walks Champlin. <laughs> 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 and he looked like, <laughs> he, had, he looked like uh, you know, with the beard, uh, Grizzly yeah. Adams type of look, right, you know? Right. And I'm thinking, uh, wow. That guy was singing that. It's unbelievable. So that's the first time I met Bill. And then a couple of years went by, and then I met him again uh, at the a place called the Flying Jib in NCNO when Heat was p- playing live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his wife began to sing in the group w- uh, with us. So at that point, Jeannie and I had decided to go separate directions in, in the music thing. And uh, Tamara Champlin, Bill's wife, became one of the lead singers.
4: Yeah.
1: So. Bill and I became friends at that point uh, and started writing and yeah we wrote many songs together and as you know one of them ended up on Chicago Twenty One and uh, some of them are coming out now even at this point on, on new albums that I'm working on. So.
0: Well, we've had and, uh, we've had Bill on the show a couple of times here and and I'll tell you he's one of the he's one of the most hilarious cats we've 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 talked to. He <laughs> just cracks us up. I think one of the the last interview that we did with him. I don't know. We just started the interview, and we just laughed for the first five minutes, and, and we didn't even start the interview. And it, he was just cracking jokes left and right. And we, Eddie, and he's I were the, in pain.
1: He's the greatest. He's the greatest with that. I mean, him and Slide Hyde, the best joke tellers in town.
0: And, and I'd have to put Steve Lukather in that group as well. Exactly. And, and
1: Steve's right there with them. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and you get those. I, I have had the pleasure of being at a few parties with Steve and, and Grayson and Champlin. And uh, you don't have to talk too much. You can just sit and watch. All right. All right. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> well, you know, you toured uh, Japan, Europe, and Scandinavia with Bill around ninety five, ninety six, as part of a band with uh, Jerry Lopez, uh, Rashawn Westmoreland, and Eddie Garcia from Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns, along with uh, Kiki Epson on keys. That's an incredible band. Uh, can you share with us uh, some of your recollections about that tour?
1: Oh, it was, it was amazing. I mean, you, you said it. The band was fantastic. Uh, i get live tapes from people uh, that I didn't know we were even being taped, you know off the board, and some people that were taped the show off the, in Scandinavia and Japan. And I'd listen to it and i go, "Man, this is really good for a live show. It really sounds great. And everything was done really well. You know, the one thing about uh, when you work with Bill with his bands, he coming from the Sons of Champlain," which I eventually ended up being a member of for a while. Uh, later on after we did those tours, you know. But he uh, was really focused on rehearsing properly. He doesn't like to go out and do anything unless he's really well rehearsed. And so we would get in, you know, and, and rehearse for a couple weeks before we'd do those shows, and just everything was so tight. And, of course, when you've got great musicians like that, uh, rehearsing them just makes it that much better, and the vocals and music is just all gelling, and that's why it sounds the way it does. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a certain thread that goes through all these musicians like Bill, the uh, the guys from Toto have the same type of uh, attitude toward music, the way they rehearse and focus on, you know, just making it perfect. And uh, it's, it's a, it's a great trait to have, I believe, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've also created a couple of really fantastic uh, uh, solo albums in, in 98 and 2000 called making up for lost time. And of course, crossings. And um, you know, how had the creative process changed? How has it changed since the recording of the Heat albums uh, back in the early 80s? Uh,
1: it was a different approach. Uh, yeah. There I was back as a solo sax player uh, after all those years of producing vocal stuff and mm-hmm. writing pop and R&B material. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, what started out in the early uh, early to mid-70s, uh, maybe, maybe mid-70s to later 70s, was Skip Drinkwater, and like i told you the story about you know being in in the studio with yep. all the cats mm-hmm. never came about until way after heat and that that's when uh, those all came about because of um a um i guess a natural disaster that happened with the northridge earthquake
4: mm-hmm. i had
1: been producing and doing um, a whole bunch of um, you know pop projects with other singers and i continued on with the path of what i had established with heat through all that all that time and um Ended up, um, you know, uh, in, in the earthquake, and, and the, uh, the place that I was living in was in Shambles. It was an apartment complex, so I couldn't even live there. So I ended up uh, uh, staying with the Champlins for a while. They invited me to come and stay at their house. And that's when we started doing uh, the, uh, the European tour, you know, happened off of that. But around that period of time, I was also in his studio all the time, because he had a studio on-premises, and I would be in there when he wasn't using it, and I'd be writing my own material and that was the beginnings of uh, Making Up Lost Time. I remember Cameron and Bill coming home from from dinner one night, and and I had been in there working on the title track, and they came in and they go, What is that? (laughs) And I said, "Uh, I think it's my next album. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it was kind of funny. Uh, He liked it. Uh, interesting factor about that, that groove on that song, uh-huh. and the groove on Turn Your Love Around on Bill's solo album, right? and uh, also another song called Modern Life on, on Making Up Lost Time, uh-huh. is the same hip-hop drum pattern on all three, and I changed the tempo, and I changed the feels, and the only reason I liked it so much is because everybody that heard it, uh, when when we were at the, one of the parties I was at with Jay Graydon, you know, he co-wrote Turn Your Love Around With Bill. Sure. And he came over to me and he goes, Saviano, how did you quantize that drum program on there? It's really grooving. And he said, mm-hmm. it sounds like a real drummer. And I said, that's for me to know and for you to find out. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to give it up. didn't want to give up the secret. Uh, but I'll tell you that it's the quantizing is approached the same way that a real drummer would play. They never play the same hit in the same spot. Right. It would be right. impossible. It yep. wouldn't sound human. And And if you hard quantize everything it sounds just like what you did. You mm-hmm. quantized it so it sounds like a machine. Right? Sure.
0: Uh, mm-hmm.
1: And I approached it like, okay, let's randomly do this. And I didn't use the computer to randomly. I did it the hard way. I went in tick by tick, as you know with these audio programs. You guys are familiar with them. Yep. And moved around snare, hi-hat, kick drum, all the stuff that, that creates the groove to make it feel real. And uh, so ended up with a groove that ended up on three different songs.
0: Wow, interesting. That's cool. Hey, Tom, let's take another break and uh, let's take a listen to a track from your first solo album, uh, Making Up Lost Time. And this is a track called JP's Groove, which is a tribute to Jeff Porcaro.
3: Um, you know, I don't want to sk- skip over so much stuff, but we really want to concentrate and dive into, you know, your, uh, how should I say, uh, your ambitious new project that's coming out. You know, asking it's out in this month in Japan. It's called Heat Revisited. So tell us a little bit in in, in uh, beginning to talk about the album. What was your initial inspiration to re-engage with uh, this music?
1: Uh, there was a couple of different things, two or three different things, really. Um, one is the fact that, you know, I occasionally i go look on YouTube and, mm-hmm. and check out different things. And, and he po- uh, popped up a few times. And I was curious to see who had put it up, because I didn't do it. Right. And I didn't know where it was coming from. And I noticed there was some kind of a little fan base that was popping up. Hey, I knew this record from, this was my jam. You know, people would come yeah. in there and say things. Right. And, you know, not that it was creating 100,000 hits or anything like that, but there was enough that I was like, "Wow, well, I wonder what would happen if somebody was actually pushing this. And it was just, you know, mm-hmm. unsolicited just by, its, by itself. So that was one of the things that I saw. And then I started getting, um, from different publishers around the world, artists wanted to cover songs off of the Heat album. Uh, Don't Waste a Minute was covered by uh, an artist that was from Britain. He's a DJ, and he did a, a, a dance version of it, but he sampled most of the horn parts and most of the guitar parts. And when I heard it, I said, well, that's my whole song. What did you do on it, you know? And he asked me how much I, publishing I want. I said, well, I want the whole thing because it's my song. <laughs> so he gave yeah. it to me, and, and I, I gave him permission to use the track. But, you know, it was, it was interesting. So I've seen that, and that song's been sampled by several different DJs. Uh, Don't waste a minute, it's quite popular out there. Mm-hmm. And then there's other songs that I noticed, uh, like Whatever It Is, another group copped the full intro from Whatever It Is, which I've never heard an intro quite like that one, the mm-hmm. way the song starts. So I thought, hey, this is, you know, the music is pretty popular. Um, maybe it's uh, time to do something. And then one other element happened. Uh, Takishi Ito, a friend of mine, uh, you're familiar with Takishi. He's got the AOR website in Japan. Okay. Um, and he's a big fan of the West Coast music and all of the stuff that we all like, you know. And he called me. Uh, we Skyped, or I think we were emailed, I forget how it was. He pointed out that that the Heat album had been released in Japan again in 2009 by Universal Music, uh, actually Geffen Records, and I had no idea. Nobody hmm. told me about it. Interesting.
0: Hmm, now, interesting.
1: It had been released by uh, by Cool Sound in 1998. With when I was contacted by the owner of Cool Sound, and he asked me permission to do that, and I said sure, because it had never been a CD on Heat, so that it was done in 1998. It came out, and, and it sold a few copies, and people were aware of it, and uh, that was the end of the story. and Then 10 years later, all of a sudden, Universal puts it out without telling me, and I'm thinking, hmm, wonder what's going on over there. Yeah, yeah. So um, Takeshi said, you know, it's still quite popular, and it's, it's a legendary group, and there are labels that want to put the album out again. So they wanted to re-release the same album again, you know, three times. And I just said, as an artist, it just seems tired to me. You know, let's do something different with it. Mm-hmm. If, I'm, if we're going to do it, uh, let's do it. You know, and, and change it up a little bit. And that was my idea. So I started to, to experiment with uh, the idea of changing the record up and maybe adding tracks that were never released before mm-hmm. and songs that you know had had been cut as part of the group heat for the live shows that we were doing. And you know, develop as I told you, developing that. So-called third album that ever came out, yeah, and uh, combined those elements with the uh, the new things that I added to um, to the new heat to, to the heat album that's it's out right now.
2: So take us into that creative process, uh, you know, in going back and reshaping the music, especially when dealing with the differences between analog and digital sources.
1: Well, the beauty of all that is, is that it was cut a lot of that music was cut in the eighties on two inch tape on studer recording machines. So you've got the beauty of tape compression and, uh, and that really, as we all know, sounds great. Yep. And, and of course, digital has come a long way. Mm -hmm. The brittleness is kind of going away these days because of higher resolution and all that. But it was really cool to be able to transfer um, audio from uh, tape sources to digital and have the sound of the analog in the digital realm. Mm-hmm. So, and it does sound different, as we all know. It's 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 got a harmonic distortion that's not the same as what what you would record on a digital recording. Right. Um, taking that into consideration, the drum sounds were old um, and uh, you know outdated. So, mm-hmm. of course, I went in and and, re, and resampled and modernized them. And in some cases, had people replay them. Um, yeah, so it sounds newer and modern. Mm-hmm. Uh there
0: you go. Well, I was at a question about when you pulled that two-inch uh, tape and you put it back up on the. I'm assuming maybe not the original shooter machine you recorded on, but when you put it back up and uh, how did the tape hold up? Did you have any uh, issues? Was it stored properly? I mean, did you? You know, when you made that transfer, did you? Uh, did you? Did you find any little interesting little idiosyncrasies about how it sounded when played back and, and making that transfer to digital?
1: Yeah, you had to bake the tape. Yeah, you had That's to bake the old, it. The, that's the secret, and yep. everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. Bake the tape, and and uh, it was four fifty six Ampex, mm-hmm. yep. which is notorious for shedding. You
0: yeah, know? it did.
1: <laughs> so we, we, we yeah we baked it and uh, and put it back up, and uh, it sounded you know fine. It was uh, we got through. Here's what I noticed: you had to run the machine. They say you're supposed to do it in one pass right away. You don't have many ch- chances. What I found is is that the more that you ran it across the heads. It would loosen the tape up even more, and you had to clean the heads again. But mm-hmm. then by the third mm-hmm. or fourth pass, you were ready to, to put it in. You yeah, know?
0: Right. Very cool. Well, you know, uh, yeah. you had uh, Bruce Geisch, who uh, is, a, is a former uh, guest of ours here on Inside Music Cast, also, and he added a great new feel on the song uh, Up to You. And can you tell us, uh, tell us why you, or what the connection was with Bruce and about his contributions to this new project?
1: Uh, Bruce and I are old bandmates from the Joan Rivers show. We were both in the Joan Rivers band. Oh, okay. So, uh, you know, he was the guitar player, and a funny story, uh, I don't know if he remembers it the same way I do, but this is how I remember it. We were in a rehearsal at Joan Rivers at Fox Studios, right? And he was talking about how he had just written this new song for, uh, Madonna, the, uh, La Isla Bonita.
0: Right, that's right. And
1: he told me the story of how it went down with Pat Leonard and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then he said, "Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen with that." I said, "Well, you know, you got a piece of the song." And he goes, "Yeah, and he had some, you know, some small smaller percentage but still significant." And I just said, "Dude, you're going to be a millionaire." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he goes, "Really? I don't know, you know." And of course, the rest is history. Right. Cause that song really took off as it was you huge. know. Yeah. Um and how many covers? 15 or 20 <laughs> artists covered it besides Madonna, you yeah. know. So anyway, that was, uh, you know, that was one of our little funny stories. And then Bruce and I always got along and he used to listen to a lot of the arrangements that uh, I would do for Champlin because him and Champlin are writing partners as well and friends. So we all are kind of family, all connected through Bill and Randy Waldman and all of us all work together and play together on these shows. And uh, long story short, I've done some horn arrangements for, um, for Bruce. He produced an artist that was one of the background singers for Madonna. Her name is Donna DeLorean. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually did a horn chart for, uh, for her record because Bruce liked my horn arranging. And then I would grab Bruce and have him come in and play on some of my productions. And so we developed a code name for different sounds on the guitar. And this is sort of like, I guess, a lot of musicians do this, but our code name for uh, a power guitar sound is called the horn. <laughs> so I called Bruce up. <laughs> I called Bruce up, and I said, "Bruce, I need some horn on the new Heat album." <laughs>
4: <laughs> <Some> horn, <laughs> and of
1: course uh, he was very happy to accommodate me and put some horn. And then I said, "I need you to do some soloing <laughs> as well." And he did that as well. And you can hear. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard uh, up to you.
0: Yes, um, yeah. Yeah.
1: you may have heard it, but I think he added what the song should have had all along, you know.
0: Mhm.
3: Well, really like uh, well, I was going to ask you like where it takes it. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you a question sort of regarding that. I mean, it's uh, you know, it it's funny you say in that that should have been in the song anyway and, you know, looking back 33 years after you first recorded this piece and you know, you look uh-huh. back and you say wow, that should have always been in there. And you look at the levels and it's, I guess, hindsight's twenty-twenty. but you had a, a unique chance to go back and make it what you really wanted. Uh, is that the way it worked for
1: you? Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. It, it, it's a great advantage to be able to do what I just did and, and be able to come back and go, Hey, that was good. What could I have done 30 mm-hmm. years later yeah, to make it better? Yeah, right. You know? And, um, you know, combining uh, Bruce's guitar and and taking some of the instruments and changing them and actually removing some stuff that I didn't think should be there anymore. (laughs) Yeah, right. You know? Um, And uh, on some of the songs, I actually put new piano parts, there's new synthesizer parts, there's different bass parts, uh, not necessary on a lot of them because the bass players that played on both of those albums are some of the finest bass players in the world, Mm -hmm. so I wouldn't want to replace those. but. In certain cases, there was a couple of songs where I thought a synth bass would be more appropriate for the song than the bass that was on there.
0: Yeah. Hey, guys, uh, while we're on the topic of Bruce Geich and uh, this, this tune Up To You from uh, the Heat Revisited uh, album that will be out soon in Japan, I believe July 17th, let's stop for a second and let's uh, take a listen to this track. This is Up To You.
3: Regarding your synths that you used, I mean, you know, look at uh, 33 years before, and did you use any, uh, I mean, were they all digital, uh, basically, uh, you know, uh, patches that you used to replicate the old vintage sense, or did you actually get some old sense of Moog or something like that and, and actually play that? How did you approach the the, the vintage sound, you know?
1: I have, um, I have you know, uh, a, a huge library of virtual synths that mm-hmm. are simulations of what you're talking about. But I also have a, a Triton uh, Pro that has great sounds in it, and uh, I combine that with some of my uh, Roland JV-880 and all the older ones that I call them older now, but they're not that old. They're not like a CS-80, which is what uh, Steve Picaro ended up playing right. on picking and Shoes, and he didn't have a he didn't have a sequencer, he didn't have a computer. Yeah. We had to fly that in, he'd, he'd sequence it into the CS-80, and we would hit record and then he'd hit the button, and hopefully we hit it at the same time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey That's Tom, funny. I noticed you, uh, you took some liberties as a producer in giving some new voices a chance to be heard on a few tracks. Tell us about your choice to use uh, Arneisha Walker, on um, the, the great new version of uh, this Love W Dubu- that we found.
1: Arnisha Walker was an artist that I was producing right around the time the Heat albums were coming out, and, and uh, it was between the first and second album. And at that time, uh, you know, I had my producing chops were getting, you know, pretty, pretty good. And I was, our other artists were, were taking notice and wanted me to produce them, and Arnisha was one of them that I met. So I got her a little uh, pre-production deal with a, with a promotion company, and they put up a few bucks. We went in the studio and cut four tracks with her at the time. Um, and she, I met Arnisia. She had just come in from New York. She was signed to the William Morris Agency. She had already done some pretty significant stuff. She was the stand-in for Stephanie Mills in in the in the Wiz on Broadway, and then she got out here. And uh, after I cut the tracks with her, maybe a couple years afterwards, there's a mutual friend of ours that became her manager, and she became uh, one of the lead in the uh, Dreamgirls cast, in the original Dreamgirls, not the movie, but the Dreamgirls. And she's got the distinction of actually being, I think, the only singer that played all three parts. She played all three dreams in different times. And um, she did the Schubert Theater out here, I think, and also did the Tokyo tour and the London tour. So, yeah, she's one of the dream girls.
0: Interesting. Well, guys, let's take uh, one more break and take a listen to another track here that we're talking about from uh, the Heat Revisited Project from our guest today, Tom Saviano. And this is the track, This Love That We Found.
4: take the play
0: I mentioned this a second ago, but there there are also uh, four songs on Heat Revisited that were first recorded during the original sessions, but you know never used. That you reapproached and and included for this release, along with an alternate version of uh, "Don't Waste a Minute." Can you tell us about these new tracks a little bit?
1: Yes, um, I mentioned earlier a little bit about changing direction and yeah. trying to find a new you know new style for Heat to go in besides the R and B stuff that we really did love and do so naturally. Um, uh, for example, what does it take is more of a rock feel and I think it has a bit of a Steely Dan kind of sound Quarterly, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that one and then uh, Carry On, just a rock shuffle. I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote that to be honest with you. Yeah. It just came out of me. Um, it was like, it was like a time when I was thinking, well, let's not go earth one in fire, let's go this direction. All of a sudden, Carry On kind of flies out, you know, yeah. and uh, just a, uh, it felt right. We did it. And I threw the horn on it with the sax and, and it just, I don't know, for some reason it just sounded like a cool song for the group. We used to do it live and people loved it. Um, the, uh, the the other version of Don't Waste a Minute was a, a version that was cut I think either before the second album or after it. I don't remember when I did it. It was in that time period. It just, I just lost track of when. But uh, I just thought that I didn't want to do it with horns. And what I did when I redid it this this last version, I added this new uh, acoustic piano that you hear on it now, and I opened it up into more of a George Duke kind of, you know, Herbie Hancock kind of voicing. Mm-hmm. So it's got an, an openness to it, and the, the way the guitar player is playing, uh, Icarus Johnson, it's just a kind of subdued kind of soloing behind it. So the horns would have overshadowed that track, and that's that's why I went the direction I did with that version.
4: Yeah,
1: uh, Try it. Uh, was written by Jeannie and I before we disbanded our, our musical group at that point, and we were trying to write new songs for the Heat album. So, try it was written with uh, you know with with a new direction in mind. As you can tell, it has almost a punkish overtone, to mm-hmm. It,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. So, that's kind of where that song is coming from.
0: You know, now that uh, Heat Revisited is complete, um, I'm just curious: Are you satisfied with the end result of how you created the album? I mean, what are what are you hoping, like, the fans of the of Heat and this album will take away from these newly renovated songs?
1: I hope that they enjoy it for what it is now as opposed to what they thought it should stay like. Because yeah. I have the—my uh, vision is things need to grow sometimes. And if they stay the same, it's okay. Yeah. You know, a masterpiece, if they— if they look at something as a masterpiece and go, why would you touch that, you know? Yeah, right. right. I, I, I think if you, you gave a painting to Van Gogh or some famous painter and they were still alive, they'd go back in and add some color that they thought needed. Because, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. they see it a different way. Yep, you know, or they're artists, so they, they have a different vision. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think all artists, would, if they're given the choice, you know, maybe they wouldn't mess with something that was considered perfect, but they'd find a different way to do it. Is it going to be better? I don't know. I think the new version of Heat is better than the old version. That's mm-hmm. my opinion. Yeah.
2: Very cool. Hey, we noticed, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at the clock here and we're going to try and wrap things up soon, but we also noticed that there's another CD being released at the same time as Heat Revisited that you also produced for an artist who goes by the initials DK. Uh, the title is DK Tonight. Uh, what can you tell us about DK and can you talk about maybe some of the artists who make uh, guest appearances on the
1: album? Yes, uh the artists that guest appear on DK, Bill Champlin, is one, and also there's several songs that Bill and I co-wrote on that album, and uh, they're fantastic songs, I think. Um, DK is a cross in, if I have to give you a definition, he's a cross between Al Jarreau meets Boss Gags. That's how I always describe him to everybody. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and his music, well, you know, if you think about it, Bill's, Bill's written for Al Jarreau, um, wow. I write songs in that vein, too. As a matter of fact, Al heard Heat, uh, the first album, when I met him, and uh, said, hey, keep doing Heat. You know, that was one of his comments to me. So um, DK's songs are in that vein. It's what DK feels naturally and what he likes to do. Um, And we have uh, Michael O'Neill playing guitar from George Benson's band on that record. Um, My son is playing drums on a lot of the tracks, which I'm very proud of. And, um, you know, just great musicians uh, Some of the guys that are on He covers a couple of the songs Off of the Heat albums as well So there's quite a bit of uh, diverse material On that record
0: Right, Guys, we're about to wrap up But I do want to take one more break And while we're talking about this, uh, this project Called Decade's Night Let's pause for a second And let's play, uh, let's play the track A New World off of this album From our guest today, Tom Saviano
4: Baby
2: We got a couple of shout-outs from uh, some of the guys that uh, sent in some messages. First of all, uh, Bruce Geich sent this message in saying, uh, "You know, I really love getting to play on my buddy Tom's Heat record. Uh, the songs are, and the grooves are fantastic, and I can't wait to play on the next one. And then uh, got one other one from Michael O'Neill. He says, the Heat Revisited project was a blast to be part of. Uh, after falling out of my chair because the groove was so deep, <laughs> when I was laying down my guitar parts, I regrouped only to notice how fantastic, full, and real everything sounded. Playing to some of Tom Saviano's tracks that included David Foster, Nathan East, and many other greats, I was taken at how fresh these tracks sounded and felt after 30 years. The challenge was to lay down guitar parts that sort of bridged the gap between then and now, and I think it all landed in a great place. Wow. It's very
1: cool. Wow. Well, I have to say that he did a fantastic job, and so did Bruce, and uh, they added so much to the record, and I'm so honored to have these guys as friends and musicians that I can work with and call on. It's, uh, it is like being a kid in a candy store, as you mentioned earlier, you know?
0: Well, hey, Tom, in wrapping up, um, I, I know that, uh, I think we mentioned earlier, that Heat Revisited will be available in Japan. Is that date July 17th, is that correct? That is correct. And then, uh, where else? Where else will we be able to uh, get it? What, maybe your site or maybe uh, iTunes or where, where will it be available for everyone else?
1: Well, I mean, the Japanese release is probably going to be out for a while. Uh, you can. There's another um, site on Amazon and CD Bank, I guess, that you can go to, to to pick it up if you wanted to order it from Japan. If you don't want to wait, uh-huh. uh, eventually, I'm going to. Probably release it here in the States, and and, and I'll let everybody know at that point where it's going to be on my site, whether it's CD Baby or whatever. We'll see. Who knows? Maybe a label will want to pick it up. You never know.
0: Yeah, well, be sure to stay in touch and let us know, too, and we'll be sure to pass it along to uh, Inside Music Cast listeners as well.
1: Fantastic. Fantastic.
0: Well, Tom, this has been this has been fantastic. A great chat. We really enjoyed it, and we hope you did too. And uh, thanks for. all I
1: of- really enjoyed it. You guys are great. It's fantastic. Your questions are uh, are very uh, intelligent, and uh, they cover a lot of a lot of territory. You know.
0: Well, we have a uh, we need to uh, thank Scott Gross for um, coming up with a lot of our material for today. He really did uh, the bulk of the research on this, and, and uh, we also appreciate him being with us here for the uh, interview. Thanks, Scott.
1: Great, to guys. Thank you.
0: Well, Tom, thanks. Take care, and let's stay in touch, and uh, maybe down the road we can do this again.
1: Fantastic. I look forward to it.
0: All right. Thanks a lot. Take care, guys. All right. Bye-bye. 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 Special thanks to Tom Saviano for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Inkstrom, Uwe Reith, Scott Sheriff, and Don Brightam for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, Please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.